If you're ready to unlock your potential to transform the world around you, then join us here on the Love and Leadership Podcast as we dive into the art of leadership, exploring cutting-edge strategies and timeless wisdom, empowering you to become the exceptional leader you were born to be. You'll learn from inspiring interviews with visionaries, changemakers, and thought leaders who give us practical and actionable real-life leadership strategies, and we'll celebrate authenticity and empathy because leadership is about connecting with others on a profound level. So if you're ready to transform your leadership journey, don't miss a single episode of the Love and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe today for access to a wealth of wisdom, inspiration, and actionable strategies. Let's redefine leadership and create a world where every leader leads with love, passion, and purpose. Welcome to the Love and Leadership Podcast, where we bring you interviews with extraordinary leaders who are changing the world. I'm Dr. Beth Merkel, your Love and Leadership Podcast host. Our special guest on this episode is Dr. Tom B. Morris. He's a true luminary in the world of philosophy and business leadership, with an impressive collection of over 30 groundbreaking books and legendary speeches. Dr. Morris is a former philosophy professor at the University of Notre Dame, and he's currently the founder and chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values in Wilmington, North Carolina. Join us as we unravel the wisdom of Tom B. Morris, a philosopher on a mission to bring deep wisdom to business and leadership. Thank you so much for joining us on the Love and Leadership podcast, Dr. Tom B. Morris. Oh, it's great to be here with a fellow business philosopher. <laughs> I do try. I do try. So, Tom, you've been a global influencer in the world of leadership for a long time. And you're one of the trailblazers of modern leadership thought that says that leadership is actually a lot more than just simply ensuring the numbers on the, the bottom line are trending upward, right? And um, I know in your book, I'll hold it up here because I have a collection and I've got it with me, actually. Um, well, if Aristotle ran General Motors, came out in 1997, and in my understanding is that this was kind of your introduction of your four foundations for sustainable greatness. Yeah. So would you give us a quick overview of these four foundations uh, for some context before we move on in the conversation? Oh, oh, sure. You know, initially I was called by an Oldsmobile dealer. He said, "We, I'm part of a Midwest Oldsmobile Dealers Association. Every year we have a motivational speaker, and they all say the same thing, you know, set goals, aim high, believe in yourself, <laughs> you can do it. He said, is there is there more to success than just that? Did the great philosophers say anything about success? And I said, it's not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale. Let me, let me look into it. And I discovered a framework of ideas I call the seven C's of success, seven universal conditions for success. I did a little book called True Success, my first non-academic philosophy book after about 10 university press books doing kind of pioneering scholarly work. Yeah, there you go, true <laughs> success. So that launched that book launched on Regis and Kathy Lee, the, the, more, the popular morning TV show. All of a sudden, I was traveling all over the world speaking to business groups about success. But I realized during that, wait a minute, there are two sides to success. In, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've only been talking about one of those sides. We've been talking about goal setting, you know, how to set the right goals, how to attain those goals. But we haven't been talking about relationship building. 
And that's a different side of success. So looking into that, I thought to myself, what makes for a great relationship? What makes for a great partnership, a great team, a great organizational culture? Surely this is a side of success in business that needs more attention. In fact, it occurred to me at the time, Beth, we were spending all our time in the 90s talking about product quality and process efficiency. We were spending no time talking about the spirit of the people who do the work. And so I decided, okay, as a philosopher, I'm going to look into that side of business. And all of a sudden I discovered throughout the centuries across the cultures, the philosophers have been talking about things that nobody was writing about, nobody was talking about. You could look at all the great business magazines. You could look at uh, Harvard Business Review. You weren't going to find anything about four big ideas. All of a sudden in researching this, I realized that from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you fall asleep at night, you experience the world along four dimensions. There's an intellectual dimension. We need truth. There's um, a, a moral dimension. We need goodness. There's an aesthetic dimension. We need beauty. There's a spiritual dimension. We need unity or connectedness. And often we talk about these in this order, truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. That's the traditional ordering. And so I thought, I wonder if these four things, truth, beauty, goodness, unity, any, any order you'd like, I wonder if they have anything to do with great relationships and great personal buy-in to whatever the endeavor is. Mm -hmm. Fulfillment, happiness, real contribution. And so the more I research these things, reading the greatest business literature of the 80s and 90s, and then going back to the 19th century and early 20th century, and I was looking for aspects of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, and finding them everywhere. And nobody was talking about these things. So I decided to write the book in four parts, each part on one of those transcendental ideals and how it applies to our business lives. And that book launched on the Today Show, and all of a sudden CEOs all over the world were saying, nobody's talking about this. You're the only person bringing up this kind of stuff. Come into our business. Give us a talk on this. Before you knew it, I was in front of uh, the, the top leadership team at General Motors, mm -hmm. talking about if Aristotle ran General Motors. Yeah. I was in front of the top leadership at Ford, at Toyota, at Unilever, at you know, Bank of America, all these great companies were asking me to come in and speak on these philosophical ideas that no, nobody had been talking about. They weren't taught in business schools. They weren't part of a CEO preparation package for understanding how to lead an organization. And it was a way of looking at leadership as about a lot more than just the numbers, but about the people who produce those numbers. In fact, if I could add just one thing here, I was on a radio show in St. Louis and a guy called in. He said, truth, beauty, goodness, unity sounds great, but we got to focus on the numbers. We don't have time for that kind of stuff. If we don't focus just on the numbers, we can't get the numbers we want. And I said, and you may remember, this was the time where Michael Jordan was at his peak of popularity as a basketball player. So I said to this caller, have you ever watched Michael Jordan play basketball? He said, yeah, all the time. Hey, I'm a big fan. And I said, well, have you ever watched him during a game? And he does this. It's kind of an idiosyncratic thing. He'll look up. You'll see him looking up at the scoreboard 
several times during the game. He said, yeah, I've noticed that. It's kind of like when he when he, he goes flying to the basket, his tongue comes out, right? That's this <laughs> other distinctive thing. It's the Jordanism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, I see him look at a scoreboard. I said, he'll do that five, six, ten times a game. But unless he looks at things other than the numbers during most of the game, he won't ever see the numbers on the scoreboard he wants to see. He's got to look at where's Scottie Pippen? Where's the ball? Where's this? Where's that? I said, well, we're talking about truth, beauty, goodness, unity. We're talking about the things you better be looking at most of the time to get the numbers you want to see. I love this because you, you t- I, I came up in my business training, if you will, um, in the 90s when it was yeah. all uh, process management yeah. and um, time studies and and all of these things like tell us what to do and we'll do it and we'll be great business people and great leaders and you know okay uh it worked for a little while kind of but what i hear you saying is you it's just not enough and it's right. certainly not enough in modern leadership where we've just really have to be part of this knowledge culture right we're not we're not deal while we still do deal in in things you know widgets we still produce those but so much of what we do is um about knowledge and knowledge sharing and the people who like you said those people who do get the numbers and yeah whether it's you know on the basketball court or on the production floor so yeah and, and, and when things are easy and there was a lot of stuff that was easy in the 90s. You just, <laughs> a lot of offices, in a lot of industries, you just showed up and great things would happen during the day, right? So do whatever you want, right? It, it didn't, you didn't need to dive deep. But right now, yeah. uh, we're challenged on every side imaginable. And leaders need something they never used to talk about. And that's that ancient, antiquated sounding word, wisdom. Wisdom. Leaders need wisdom. And, and when you say that, people think, what, what's he talking about? You know, Yoda, Gandalf, <laughs> you know, monk on a mountain someplace. What we're talking about, and in fact, somebody just asked me this the other day. They said, how do you define wisdom? That's a good That's, question. I have yes, sought the it? answer to that myself. Yeah. A, a young college student from Madrid, Spain, came to me in Wilmington, North Carolina, visited not too long ago. He always wanted to talk to me as a philosopher. He said he wanted to talk philosophy. So we went out to breakfast and we sat at the table. And rather than ask him, well, what's good here? You know, his first question was, what is wisdom? <laughs> was, okay, we're going to get right into it. All right. So, so I gave him an answer I'd often given. I said, wisdom is embodied insight for living well. Mm. It's embodied insight. You can't be a wise person who lives foolishly. You can't just have a lot of aphorisms and epigrams and clever, wise sayings in your head and be a wise person. You have to embody it. It has to percolate into your thoughts, your attitudes, your emotions, your actions. So it's embodied insight for living well. So that's what I said. And then I thought for a second, and something came to me I'd never said before. So I said it to him. I said, wisdom is guidance and guardrails. And he was not a native English speaker. English was his second language. So he says, what are, what are guardrails? And I said, you know, you're driving up on a twisty mountain road and you're up high. There's a metal railing alongside the road that keeps your car from falling over the edge. Oh, oh, okay, guardrails. I said, wisdom is guidance. Imagine a lighthouse leading you forward. 
or a, a mountain cabin high up on the hill, blazing with light in the fog or the mist of the mountain. And that, that guides you. It gives you direction. It gives you a destination. It gives you a sense of light on your path. But then you need guardrails as well. You don't want to fall over the side of the mountain. You need you need things to keep you safe. Wisdom at its best is about both guidance leading us forward and guardrails keeping us safely on the path. In the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, almost all the guidance in business books, self-help, success, personal growth books, it's all been about guidance. Do this, do that. Try this, try that. This worked for Apple. This worked for another company. It's very little about guardrails, but we need those too. And he said, I never thought about that before. And I said, neither have I. <laughs> I love it. It just, you know, some of the most profound things just come to us in a flash. But yeah. what I'm hearing you say is like the the guidance would be the techniques, the processes, the yeah. um, checklists that we do that yeah. say that we've got to do this. Right. Or even, even the numbers can be right. a form of guidance. We've got to yeah. meet this goal leaders have to have a goal to which we are guiding our teams. But um, the wisdom comes in when we use the guardrails of truth, beauty, yeah, right. goodness, That's and right. unity. So yeah. so let's get into that a little bit. Um, in light of those, we'll say the four guardrails. Yeah. What, what are we doing wrong, Tom? I look at leadership in whatever capacity, uh, you know, whether political, business, uh, academic, uh, social, whatever. And lately, I've I've not been incredibly impressed. What what are we doing wrong as leaders lately? It's almost like the four ideals of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity have been replaced by false ideals of money, power, fame, status. And we will do, when people think of business as just a money machine, they are thinking too narrowly and in a way that will get them in trouble. Business, I've been telling people for years, business is not meant to be a money machine. It's meant to be an engine for human good. And when we think of business that way, as what we do together to improve our lives, to improve the lives of other people, to make the world a better place, how we cultivate the garden in which we, we live, then we, we don't focus on those counterfeits of uh, true success. Um, nothing wrong with money, fame, power, status. If they're used appropriately, they're all means to other ends. You know, it's good to have money because you can do, if money is possibility, you can do good things with money. It's good to have power if it's used well. Uh, but all those things can take you down the wrong road too. But when we concentrate on the great virtuous ideals, as the philosophers would say, and virtue just comes from a Latin virtu, which means strength or power or prowess. When we think about those things that give us true power to use money well, to use power well, to use fame well, to use status well, then we stay on the road. We don't fall into the abyss. And so if I can get people thinking about the right things, let's say the four right things, those guardrails, then they'll be able to get as much as they need of the four other things that are just means to other ends, and they'll be able to use them well for those ends and not, not 
chase false gods. It's almost idolatry, right, in, in a secular context. We're chasing the wrong things. Money, power, fame, status should be sometimes side effects of great work that goes in accordance with truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. And if I can help people get the right focus, people don't understand enough about some things should be focal goals and other things should be side effects. And when you chase the side effects as focal goals, nothing goes right. But when you chase the right things as focal goals, then all these wonderful side effects come up as well uh, as a byproduct of a, of a healthy process that makes people better. How many, how many parts of the human economy too, when we look at now uh, and, and, and dimensions of our life, and say, oh, this this part of our economy is making human beings better. You know, it, it's like, really? We should even be asking questions like that well, ever since the ancient world. And a lot of people don't realize Adam Smith, the philosopher-in-chief of capitalism, mm-hmm. wrote a book 12 years before his famous Bible of capitalism. Uh, he wrote a book about virtue. And he believed that all human activities to succeed should be rooted in the classic virtues, the classic strengths, things that feed into exactly what we're talking about, truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. And those four things, that, that this innate, perhaps, um, yeah. human wisdom, uh, you know, human and divine, if you want to go there, it's just... Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Um, touches people, all people across, Mm -hmm. you want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, try practicing these four pillars of sustained greatness because because all of us at some level, some some deep primal level, respond very positively to to this type of wisdom. It, It goes to authenticity. It goes to transparency. It goes to motivation. All of these things that are on, you know, the checklist of what great leadership is, you know. Yeah, um, that's wrong. It all goes back to this. And one thing I say over and over is that the idea that, um, you know, it's just business. Oh, it's it's just business. You know, this is not a personal decision. What is business if not personal right. and that's made right. up yeah. of the persons who conduct the business at every level. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, I used to hear people say in the 90s, especially when that book came out, if Aristotle Rancher Motors, when it came out, I used to hear people say things like, well, well, wait a minute, slow down here. I have different hats. I wear one hat at work and another hat at home. You know, I, I don't treat the people at work the same way I treat the people at home or, or vice versa. I said, wait a minute, you may have different hats, but you wear them on the same head. So what you do in one dimension of your life is going to flow over into the other. You cannot compartmentalize 100% and tightly. So if you're acting in inappropriate ways in any facet of your life, they're going to leak over into other aspects of your life, whether you want it to or not, because we are unitary as human beings and we cannot separate ourselves like that in, in, internally. So everybody has a need for truth. I mean, find me the greatest liar in the world. And he will get mad when his car mechanic lies to him. He will get mad, right, if somebody lies to him in a deal. So he uses lies to manipulate uh, other people, but he doesn't want to be manipulated, right? So he wants truth. He wants to be told truth, whether he's going to tell it out. We all have a need for truth to be plugged into reality, or we can't make any of our plans work. 
Likewise, with beauty, which a lot of people in the world of business just think, well, what does that even mean? This you know? is what was going to be my question. Like, okay, let's, how do, how do we make business beautiful? I know. See, but, but people people have a different kind of trouble with truth. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. They want to be, you know, they want to hoard it. They want to keep it to themselves, not give it away too generously, right? And and so, but but companies that make truth a, a two-way street where it's free-flowing, then everybody knows what's going on. People aren't telling the CEO just what he or she wants to know. They're, they're telling him what they need to know. They're, and, and, and so with full access to truth, one of my neighbors, was Jack Welch's direct report at GE for many uh, uh, years. Okay. And he said that his job was to go into underperforming units and shut them down or turn them around in 18 months or less. And he said the only way he could make it work was to tell people the absolute unvarnished truth about everything that was going on day one, meeting one, because then they had the power. They could take the power to turn it around. He said, if I didn't tell them the truth about what was going on, there was no, there was no, way things could happen. But then when I transitioned to talk about beauty, people would say, like, what does this even mean? One guy told me that his he was a CEO of a big insurance company, property and casualty insurance. He told me he decided to redo, renovate the workplace, to make it nicer for people, uh, redo the flooring, redo the paint jobs on the walls. And people say, what? Why? And he said, I just think you'll make people feel better to come to work. He said, listen, Tom, people were saying to me, it's too expensive to redo the whole, you know, offices. And everything. he said, no, no, no. What's expensive is people working in ugly circumstances, old, worn. He said, we should make it as beautiful as we can. And he said, in no time at all, productivity goes up. Absenteeism goes down. Uh, people are bringing their families in to see the new workplace. He said, it was just magical the change. A guy in Brazil did it with a factory. He allowed the the people who ran the machinery to, to repaint the machinery any color they wanted. He had the factory floor cleaned up. So what used to be kind of dirty and there was junk everywhere, no, no longer. He said every measure of, of manufacturing success went through the roof when people were working in more pleasant circumstances. So I, I say to people, think about the aesthetics of the workplace, but then think about this. This is even deeper. We all have the two kinds of the beauty. Um, there's uh, the beauty we perceive, you know, like a beautiful workplace. Right. And there's the beauty we perform. Think about a ballet dancer. Think about a musician. There's a perform. Think about Michael Jordan again. There was a beauty as he flew through the air to make a beautiful dunk. Absolutely. There, you remember? Absolutely. Poetry. It. We loved watching it, but he loved doing it even more because there was a beauty in the doing that we couldn't experience uh, sitting in front of the TV set or in the in the stadium. But there's a beauty he felt. Give people in your business that performance beauty. Let them create a beautiful solution to a client's problem. Let them, let them devise a beautiful new way of doing things in the office. Let them be creative. Let them be performative because that, that gives people a buy-in that nothing else can get. It doesn't matter. At a certain level, it doesn't matter what you pay people. They're not going to be any more committed to what they do. They might be giddy about their, you know, uh, their raise, but commitment, engagement comes from this performance beauty as well as from the perceived beauty. So I've been told stories by leaders, you know, put baskets of fruit everywhere in, in the workplace. Everybody, uh, all of a sudden, uh, people's evaluations of work shoot up because 
if they want an apple or an orange or some grapes, there they are in a beautiful wicker basket. If they don't, if they aren't hungry, they're just seeing these beautiful sights throughout the offices. We feel better about what we're doing if we're in an experience of beauty. And most people in the world of work don't think about that at all. They don't. They don't think that uh, how we are such sensory beings. Yeah, and whether we, we acknowledge it or not, our surroundings send signals to our brains and our brains respond accordingly. And all these chemicals are uh, yeah. are released according to the stimulus. And then we respond. So whether that's kind of imploding and, you know, being sad or whether it's, um, you know, feeling these perhaps sometimes inexplic- inexplicable uh, feelings of elation or freedom or even safety. Yeah. You know, it has right. so much to do with the environment that we're in and recognition of, I would call it, and and correct me if I'm off base here, um, but I'm hearing you say through my own bias that part of beauty is recognizing contribution. Contribution yeah. is huge for me. I have to know as an individual, I have to know that my contribution matters. Yeah, um, that's right. You do. You do. And that when you are recognized, there is a double beauty. Uh, William James, the great Harvard psychologist, wrote these two volumes, Principles of Psychology. And as soon as he was done, it was in a letter to a friend, I think. He said, you know what? I forgot to say something in my principles. I left out something. I mean, here's this. I've got them on the shelf that takes up this much room on the shelf. He said, I left out something. And the principles said that probably the single greatest motivation for human beings is the need to feel appreciated. And when you do something beautiful and somebody gives you a beautiful thank you, a beautiful acknowledgement, that's double beauty that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And you will bring that motivation to the next thing you do. As we affirm those around us, we increase their motivation. As they experience performance beauty, that in itself increases their motivation. But as we show appreciation for that, that doubles the motivation. And people have just been ignoring that uh, far too long. And it costs nothing. Uh, to thank people, to show gratitude, to show appreciation. Well, yeah, you can do it in ways that are expensive, but you don't have to. Just to go up and say, Barbara, you did a great job on solving that client's problem. I think the solution was beautiful you came up with. Boy, that goes a long way. And people just been ignoring that completely to their own uh, detriment. My wife and I were in Russia right after the Soviet Union broke up. And in St. Petersburg, this place of beautiful palaces from the past, all the 20th century architecture was dirty and rusty, and there were weeds in everybody's yards and graffiti on buildings. And I remember standing in a neighborhood, which could have been beautiful, but it just been allowed to get really ugly. And I thought, you know what? Ugliness is death to the spirit. Beauty makes the spirit soar. And we have neighborhoods in American cities the same way. And when people take an abandoned lot full of trash and turn it into a beautiful garden, there's a new spirit of community in the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We do that in the workplace. We can pay attention to that in everything we do, and we can make things better. I think we need to be concentrating on things like that all the time. I, I Just light bulbs are going off in my head all over the place. <laughs> so I'm going to try and articulate something that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. What you're saying is 
relating in my mind so directly to these modern um, buzzwords, if you will, in yeah. business, which uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, right. belonging. Yeah. You know, when you recognize uh, people's diverse contributions, you, that's yeah. a, the beauty each one brings individually as um, as a as a person themselves and the way it contributes and makes the team effort right. even more beautiful. Um, yeah. And then the sense of belonging that oh, yeah. our people get from this recognition of their own beauty. I mean, this is... Yeah, and then as soon as you do that, you realize you're leaping even beyond truth and beauty into goodness, treating people with fairness and justice. And as soon as you're doing that, then all of a sudden the truth and the beauty and the goodness create unity, the fourth thing, a, a, a form of unity out of diversity that gives you the ultimate strength as an organization. Because if you just hire people that are exactly like you, you're probably all going to have this roughly the same biases and the same blind spots. But if you hire people who are different, who come from different backgrounds, different cultures and different upbringings, they're going to see things in a different way. And so people's blind spots will be filled in. Together, we can do more than we could, could have done aggregately as separate individuals, partly in, 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 because great partnerships arise out of healthy diversity properly brought together into new forms of unity. And if we could understand that better in the world of business, I think we'd be doing a lot better than, than we are now. Uh, agreed. It goes, it's so much more uh, nuanced. And yeah. um, I would even go so far as to say in, intrinsically natural than yeah. a, um, I don't want to step on any toes, but a, a you know, some uh, affirmative action checklists, you know, yeah, like I have right, to. Right. I, Everybody turns everything into a checklist. And it's not as if, I mean, surgeons have checklists, airline sure. pilots have checklists. Yeah. If there's something you're going to forget, have a checklist. But uh, uh, you've got to go deeper than just the checklist. You've got to go to the spirit of things. That's why the, there's always been a difference between the law and the spirit of the law, the rules and the spirit of the rules. Because whenever you try to create great corporate culture just by a lot of rules and regulations, people find loopholes, people find a way around the rules, people will misinterpret the rules. What you've got to do is create a culture of wisdom and virtue. And it's funny because I did a book right before the pandemic it came out about how to deal with difficult change. And people think, were saying to me, what are you, some genius? You knew we were going to come up with the most difficult change in modern history with the pandemic. And you come out with a book in January, right before we shut down in March, how to deal with difficult change. But in the <laughs> everyone with lots of time to read suddenly. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> in fact, I have a copy right here on my desk, Plato's Lemonade Stand. You know, the old adage, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Everybody says it, but nobody says how. Turns out there are two parts of dealing with change. One part is the change that happens to us, and one part is the change that will only happen because of us. So in the book, I divide it in two parts. Okay, when things cross your path you didn't expect, when difficulties come, how do you make that lemonade that we're told to make? But then secondly, if you're in a leadership position, how do you create change in a way that turns those lemons in a lot of people's minds into lemonade that goes from difficulty to delight. And one of the things you have to do is create a culture of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. So there we are back to the four foundations, 
the four transcendentals, uh, the four ideals from 1997, if Aristotle or Angela Motors repurposed in a new way in the context of a much bigger book on dealing with not only disruptive change, but uncertainty. Because in the early days of the pandemic, all these leadership teams were coming to me to help them deal with disruptive change. Well, after about two or three years, they were coming to me asking a different question, but it's also a question the same book deals with and the, the four foundations we're talking about deal with how to deal with uncertainty. Uh, so disruptive change was on the forefront of everybody's minds in 2020, 2021. Yeah. 2022, it started shifting a little bit to all the uncertainty we're surrounded by globally in every facet of our lives. Same stuff. If you don't have a culture and a climate of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, you're not going to have trust. You're not going to have hope. You're not going to have faith. You're not going to have confidence that you need to deal with uncertainty. In fact, I'm getting ready to write a new little book called The Gift of Uncertainty to show people how uncertainty, rather than being the worst thing in the world, if it's used properly, can bring out our best, but only if we're using ideals like truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. Only if we can face that uncertainty with some level of um, perhaps, uh, it, it, the right word, maybe safety. That maybe That's an old yeah. People used to say safety in numbers. Well, not necessarily. A, a big crowd can be very dangerous. <laughs> but if you, if you have real partners, if you have a number of true partners, you have numbers of people who are in community, then things can go really well. In fact, Aristotle, in a book called The Politics, saw the pinnacle of human good is coming out of, and the formula is threefold. It's not his formula. I had to come up with this formula to make sense of a lot of stuff he was saying in that in that ancient book. It's people in partnership for a shared purpose. People, plural. You know, one person alone hardly ever does anything great. Even if it looks like there's a great inventor, a great discoverer, there are all these other people behind the scenes that help mm -hmm. make it happen. Mm -hmm. So it's people, plural, in partnership. Not just people in a mob, a, you know, an unruly crowd, but people in a certain kind of relationship, partnership, what kind of relationship? What kind of partnership for a shared purpose? Aristotle had this view that a city, and we get our word politics from the polis, uh, the Greek word for the city. The city um, was about how well to, how best to live well together. So a city should be thought of as a partnership for uh, human good, uh, a partnership for living well. Well, when I was reading the politics, I realized, well, wait a minute, that applies to a family, that applies to a neighborhood, that applies to a business. All should be partnerships for living well. And if we forget that, things are going to go badly. We've forgotten that in American politics, well, on a national level, on a state level, on a local level. We should be viewing each other not as adversaries, not as enemies, but as partners for living well. Yes, we have differences. Well, let's find what we have in common so that maybe we can work on those differences. But rather than looking for common ground where partnerships can grow and flourish, people are just focused on the differences. So I did a little book a, a, a year ago uh, called The Everyday Patriot that takes people back to the values of the founders of our nation, to the values of the philosophers who influence them so we can find common ground that applies just as much in business life as it does in civic life. As a philosopher, I see the unity of all things. And if we can understand that in our particular in endeavors, our, our corporate endeavors, our educational endeavors, we can give ourselves new tools for flourishing, for doing well together.
I, I love this. And my um, my copy of Everyday Patriot is due to arrive on my doorstep today sometime. So that's I've good. <laughs> I've got my reading for Which, the next. That's the thing that surprised me. I was asked to write a book about our founding values based on the Declaration of Independence, and I never thought as I was writing it, as one corporate leader said to me as soon as he read the book, he said, we need this in our business right now. And I said, really? Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got this idea that every human life can be mapped by concentric circles, like a, like the bands on an archery target, right? And he said, your idea that the innermost circle is your own heart and mind. So get that as healthy as you can, your own heart and mind, work on that. And then you can contribute positively to the next circle, your family, your friends. Uh, get your family and friends as strong as they can be, healthy, strong, wise. Then you can contribute to the next circle out, your neighborhood, your town, and the next circle out, your state, your nation, your world. He said this whole idea I call it contributory localism. You start from where you are, try to grow your garden well for the good of others as well as yourself and contribute that to the next circle out. And you keep doing that together. He said, in our company, their divisions fighting each other. Oh. Their vice presidents at war with each other. They need to understand the concentric circles. They need to understand contributory localism. They need to understand how they should start where they are and make it good, not in combat with other divisions of the same daggum company, mm -hmm. but in order to make our overall endeavor stronger. We need a mind shift change and we need, I need to have everybody read your book because I know it was written about politics and voting and citizenship and stuff like that, but it applies just as much to the world of work. And I said to this guy, Thank you for recognizing something that I hadn't even recognized yet, and I should know better, because when you philosophize deeply enough, you touch everything. I can absolutely see that, and I, I can't wait to, to dig into it. And again, it goes back, uh, as you said, to those inherent truths yeah. um, of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. So indeed, let's take it to... Uh, a, a practical side. Sure. And um, so I'm leading. I'm perhaps new to leadership, perhaps not. Uh, but I recognize that um, maybe I'm not maximizing these concepts. Maybe I'm not leading with as much wisdom as mm -hmm. I could. Yeah. Tom, what are, how do we get practical? If, if yeah. Beth Merkel wants to be the best leader in the areas of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, yeah. right now it sounds uh, it, it sounds just very big, very esoteric. How do I get my how do I get my uh, my hooks into that and get some leverage? One of the past presidents of Ford Motor Company said that he was walking through a factory one day, and one of the workers, one of the guys, said, "Hey, hey." I want to talk to you a minute. Yeah, he saw the suits walking through. He, he, he recognized this guy who was president of Ford. He said, I want to talk to you a minute. And the guy said, okay. And he walked over and he said, uh, the guy said, I used, I used to hate working here. I used to hate coming to work in the morning. This place was a miserable place for me to spend my day. And the guy says, I'm really sorry to hear that. He says, yeah, yeah, but here's the rest of the story. Not too long ago, my supervisor started asking me, you know, how I thought about the way we were doing things here. If I thought we could, we needed to change anything about the way we were working in, in this department, he was treating me like a human being for the first time ever, like I had a mind, not just two strong hands. 
And he said, I started telling him what we should do. And he took some wild ideas and he used them. He said, I feel great coming to work here now. I look forward to my job every day because I'm being treated like a human being. They're asking me what I think. And when I read that story, I thought, wow, that's what any leader or any manager or any supervisor at any level can do. You want to start truth? Yeah, tell people the truth, but ask them what they think the truth is. One guy came to me, I spoke on my seven C's of success, uh, this other framework of ideas from the book, True Success. And these frameworks go together because uh, if you're setting goals and want to attain them, the seven C's says have a clear conception, have a strong confidence, have a focused concentration. Okay, stuff like that. But you need to govern it with the guardrails of truth, beauty, goodness, unity. And then if you want to implement any of the guardrails, like truth, like beauty, you got to use the seven C's. Okay, I need a clear conception of how I can do this. I need to be confident about it. I need to focus concentration. So it's like yin and yang together, right? So one day I was talking to a big insurance company in Boston about the seven C's of success. And number two of the seven conditions is confidence, a strong confidence that we can attain the goal. So a guy comes up to me, a senior vice president of the company. He says, look, I totally get what you're saying about confidence. And you know that when you're confident, it helps other people be confident. But I am really afraid that people are going to misinterpret my confidence as arrogance because I'm a naturally confident guy, but I think it rubs people the wrong way, the way I do it. And he said, how can you be really confident without being arrogant? And I said, always ask other people their opinions because arrogant people never do. <laughs> that is such a good point. And why wouldn't you collect that data, right? Oh, right. <laughs> the information so, is right there. Pick it up. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, so one of the ancient philosophers, he was Socrates' overlooked student. So Socrates had two great students. One was named Plato. Everybody knows about Plato. The other was named Xenophon. Hardly anybody knows about Xenophon. Plato became a full-time philosopher and taught Aristotle. Uh, Xenophon became a military leader. Uh, and so once Peter Drucker said the greatest book on leadership ever written was Xenophon's book, The Education of Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, I had never heard of that book. Here I was talking to leadership groups all over the world, and Peter Drucker says the greatest book on leadership ever written is Xenophon's Education of Cyrus. I didn't know anything about that. I don't feel so bad for not knowing it myself. Thank yeah, you. right. Nobody does. And so... So I go find it, University of California Press, paperback, you know, Education of Cyrus. Um, and I read it, and I read it again, and I read it again. I, read, I probably read it five times because the greatest books need to be read over and over and over. You can't absorb everything the first the first time through. But, but, but Xenophon had these perspectives on leadership that, for example, the first story he ever wrote on leadership was a story about a poet who goes to visit a tyrant a dictator of a small country. And the um, the poet says to the dictator, oh, it must be great to be tyrant because you're in charge of everybody and everything. You have most of the money. Everybody has to do what you say. And the, and the guy says, it's the opposite of what you think. It's the worst position in the world. And he says, well, why does everybody want to be a tyrant then, be a dictator then? And if it's the world, what do you mean it's the worst? Well, people never tell you the truth. They tell you what they think they, you want to hear rather than what you should hear. Uh, people uh, resent you because they think you're, you're getting too much of the goods and services. They're not getting enough pay. You're getting too much. People, it goes down this list of complaints about a leader. 
they're the same complaints in our day about leaders. And and it's like, so the poet says at the end of this little story, he says, look, I, I think I, I, I've got a so solution for you. Start treating people as if you were their servant rather than them being your servants. Start showing people you care about what's good for them and not just what's good for you. And he goes down like this. It's like servant leadership. This is Plato's student, Xenophon. And, and so he's talking about he's talking about truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. You read this little dialogue deeply enough, you say, wow, there it is in the ancient world. And we're not reading the stuff. So we think, what, we have to make it all up ourselves? Like there have been no wise people before me. Here I'm in charge of a company, you know, or I'm in charge of a division of a company, or I'm in charge of a small grocery store. I got to make all this stuff up myself. How do you so handle responsibility? It's crazy. <laughs> oh, you make a good point. Yeah, just tap into what's already out there, whether it's the ancient wisdoms, whether it's, you know, the more modern books that that have a lot of business wisdom from people with a lot of experience whether it's your your team your people uh, themselves or yeah. your own experience trust your own experience too right and so that comes That's into right. awareness you know, look, look, look into every resource for insight and wisdom you can find. It's your own past history. It's the past histories and perspectives of other people. It's the past histories and perspectives of other people who've written about it, and they've written about it in the last few years, in the last few centuries. The earliest human epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is about a king of a, a, of a kingdom called Uruk that's in the current location of Iraq. And he starts off the story as a really bad king, really manipulative. Uh, he cares about nothing but himself, his own ego. He cares nothing about people. He'll 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 falsely say things to people to get him to do stuff for his own good. But he's a, really the ultimate abuser. And by the end of the story, he becomes a good king. Well, how many leaders in the modern world I, do I know who studied the epic of Gilgamesh? I don't know. Have, I've never had a CEO tell me, oh, I learned yeah. how to be a good leader by reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. You can read Beowulf, the Anglo-Saxon epic about the top performer, frontline performer, like the Michael Jordan on the court that we've been talking about. Here's the warrior that nobody can stand up against. And so he's the greatest warrior there is. And so to reward him for being a great frontline performer, he's promoted to the level of king of his own kingdom. And rather than asking himself, okay, how do I have to change the way I do things to be a leader here, rather than just a frontline performer, he doesn't ask it. He keeps doing things the same old way. He's always done things and it leads to his own demise and the crumbling of his kingdom because he never learned how to adapt as a leader. How many leaders do I know who've read the epic of Beowulf so they could be better leaders. In fact, one time I mentioned it to a, a big banking group, and it was in the context of talking about the four foundations or the seven seas of success. I can't remember. But one of their guy top uh, leaders called me later and said, hey, for the first time ever, I've got on my bedside table Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> what's that you're reading <laughs> oh my gosh i might have to update or maybe 
you know, backdate the yeah. reading yeah. in my program, right? Uh, <laughs> For my organizational so leadership program. Encourage people to go buy and read books other than mine. I mean, please start <laughs> with me, but don't neglect the great books of the past. Awesome. That is so wonderful. I, as always, Tom, I could keep this conversation going on for for days, but, um, you know, <laughs> my poor producer, Grace, is uh, <laughs> not going to have that. So um, we're running out of time, but I would like to uh, wrap it up a little here. If there is one nugget uh, or, or a section of nuggets that you'd like our audience to walk away with, what is it? You can make a difference wherever you are. When my book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, first came out, um, people sort of assumed it was for people in top leadership positions. If Aristotle, you know, great person, very accomplished, ran General Motors, big organization, I just said, first of all, the book is really not about Aristotle and it's really not about General Motors. They're just kind of icons of anybody running an organization. And I said, but here's the deeper truth. Most people are not running organizations. Most people, uh, they're in an office where there are a few people around them. I said, here's the real message of the book and the real message of the philosophers. You can make a difference wherever you are. Everybody has a sphere of influence, mm-hmm. you know, a circle of influence. Bring truth, beauty, goodness, and unity to that circle. It will spread. Everybody has some leverage in the lives of other people, use that leverage to promote truth, beauty, goodness, and unity in practical ways. Like, for example, fruit baskets. A guy said to me, he read my book, and the thing he got most excited about was a story about fruit baskets (laughs) in the workplace. And he went to his head of HR and said, look, can we put fruit baskets every place in our offices? And she said, what? And he (laughs) said, well, I just read this book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, and there's this great story about fruit baskets. And she said, this is just the silliest thing I've ever heard. He said, but I really worked on her, and I got her to read that section of your book. And she said, okay, okay, in the section on beauty. And he said, she told me a couple months later, this is the single best thing we've ever done (laughs) to improve employee morale. So, these sound like abstract ideas, truth, you know, big deal, you know, beauty, goodness, unity. But when we bring them down to earth and ask detailed questions about how we operationalize these ideals, how we implement these ideas today, tomorrow, with the group of people I'm closest to, in the, in my with client relations, with supplier relations, right, with, with, with whoever we have to work with, let's try to do a little more of these things. And we're not asking people to totally revolutionize their business practices between today and tomorrow or this week and next week. We're asking import a little of the wisdom of the ancients into your daily practices. Yeah, have a checklist, truth, beauty, goodness, unity, that takes you beyond a checklist into doing deeper, better, more humane things day to day in a way that really gives people a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of uh, camaraderie of community. You know, if if the people in a business don't love the business, it's product or service. Why is anybody else going to love the business? It's product or service. And the way you create that love, in fact, one of the early people reading the book said, well, wait a minute, why is love not a major thing here? I said, ah, because love is all about truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. If you take <laughs> care of those four things, you got love. 
And uh, he said, oh, I didn't even think of that. And so, so if we bring these genuinely human interests into the workplace, where it can seem so foreign because all we're talking about is other stuff, but introduce these. Let's say a philosopher, you heard a philosopher talk about these things. Used to be as an excuse. I tell people that all the time and they tell me it works because I never would have brought up this stuff with my colleagues. But if I could say, yeah, I heard this philosopher the other day on a podcast or I was reading this philosopher's book. What do you guys think about this? So I will get the people who make uh, pop sockets that fit on the back of your uh, your iPhone so that you can hold it when you're uh, doing videos and stuff. They send me a picture from their workplace they're all holding copies of if Aristotle ran General Motors because they're figuring out how to how to use this. And they, the people from the uh, 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 NSA, the super spooks that we have, the most secret <laughs> agency in the U.S. government, they sent me a, an email uh, uh, on a secure server uh, telling me they were reading if Aristotle ran General Motors so they could figure out how within the NSA to enhance the flow of truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. So here we're talking about people who help you hold your cell phone, and we're talking about people who guard the U.S.'s greatest secrets, and they're both using the ideas of the ancient philosophers. I've seen people use this in a local business, local retail business, local grocery store, a dental office. Uh, it doesn't have to be General Motors. We can make a difference with the wisdom of the ages wherever we are. Oh, thank you so much for that. It's, it's so empowering. Because yeah. each one of us in our own world every day with every choice that we make can choose to act, you know, according wisely. Let's let's yeah. put it that way. Absolutely. That's why I love to give talks at least. And I've given over 1,200 talks on uh, philosophical topics for business groups around the world, whether in person or through uh, 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 platforms like this. Um I see people get excited about these ideas. Mm -hmm. I see people give the philosophers standing ovations where they're whistling and they're yelling like they did when I played in a rock band. Yeah. <laughs> it's because Yay. these ideas are so empowering and they know, like they said to me, I was on, on, I've been on stages a lot of time with very famous people, uh, Colin Powell, Georgia Barbara Bush, James Carville, and Mary Madeline, uh, uh, or the general who won the 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 the, the first war in the Middle East, uh, 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 Schwarzkopf. All these. I'm the who's he amongst the who's who. I'm the only person on the program I've never heard of, right? So, uh, <laughs> and yet people later are saying to me, oh, "We love the stories that you know Colin Powell told. It was so inspirational." But it was your talk that gave us stuff we could do the very next day. Yeah. So practical. Nobody ever told me that philosophy could be practical. I said, well, it's been my beautiful journey for the last 30 or 40 years to figure out the practicality of great philosophy, of great wisdom, and how it can enhance our lives and our results right now. Amen. Uh, yeah, I'm, I have absolutely nothing to add to that. You are... <laughs> Preaching to the choir here, and, and we know from past conversations we are yeah. on the same page here. But I do want to turn it over to you, you specifically, Tom. What what do you, Dr. Tom B. Morris, have coming up or want us to know about? Um, uh, well, you said you've got some books coming out, some yeah. your your services. Sure. How do we contact you? What do you have coming up? Anybody can come to my website, Tom V, as in Victor, my middle name, TomVMorris.com. And that's a jungle of a website. You can explore endlessly there to find out the, my books, my talks, the groups I've spoken to, what I'm, what's going on right now. I'm excited about that. 
I'm excited about the fact that the dummies people who asked me in 1998 to write the book Philosophy for Dummies, a, a woman uh, saw me uh, to speak to a group of 2,500 drugstore executives. All the big drugstores changed, like Walgreens and CVS, all the big chains met in Florida at uh, the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach, and I gave a talk. It was um, uh, the guy who did the book Emotional Intelligence, Daniel Goldman spoke, and then I spoke on True Success or the Four Foundations. I think it was True Success. And so a few days later, I get a call. Hey, I was in your audience down in Florida a few days ago at the Breakers uh, in Palm Beach. And she said, uh, I'm the editor, the main editor for the Dummies books. You've got to write philosophy for dummies for us. I said, come on, you guys do gardening books and car repair books and stuff like that. And she said, no, 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 we're going to launch Lifetime Learning. And we've already asked the, the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Thomas Hoving, to do art for dummies. And he's agreed. So if you agree to do philosophy for dummies, you two guys will launch our Lifetime Learning. And so I turned my intro philosophy course in Notre Dame into the book Philosophy for Dummies. In January of this year, they called me out of the blue and said, stoicism is suddenly big in business, entertainment, sports, the military. Ancient Greek and Roman writers are the thing now. They're all the fad. Could you <laughs> write a book called Stoicism for Dummies for our series And by September? And I said, okay. So in January, this <laughs> coming January, Stoicism for Dummies will be out. We're shopping around the book now based on Mary Shelley's Short novel, Frankenstein, which, by the way, when you go looking for Gilgamesh or Beowulf, don't ignore Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, the greatest cautionary tale on success ever written. Brilliant man, Victor Frankenstein, does everything people advise you to do to be successful, and he is. He's so successful, he creates and launches into the world a monster he can't control. Hmm. That is a metaphor for so much in modern life. Oh my goodness, Netflix, yes. Business. How about these creative investment vehicles that launched the Great Recession? How about uh, launching the pandemic? How about political divisiveness in America? Zuckerberg never sat in his dorm room and said, I want to create um, a social media platform that takes down democracy around the world. Here you have Victor Frankenstein. He just wants to create human life you know, uh, from scratch. And it's like, he's going to be the first to ever do it. He's going to be famous forever. Self-focused, grandiose ambition. We can read the headlines, whether it's Vladimir Putin going into Ukraine, whether it's Elon Musk and his latest escapade, who, whatever it is, people repeating what Mary Shelley warned us about. It doesn't matter if you have all the greatest advice in the world about how to be successful. You can go disastrously wrong unless you think about the guardrails. Mm -hmm. And so I have a book called The Frankenstein Factor, subtitled Monster Success and Massive Failure. That is all about this phenomenon. We're showing it to publishers now. So I wanted to mention it because uh, the head of the um, CEO of Fortune magazine uh, read an early draft of it. He said, well, this, you're launching a whole new genre of leadership study with this book. He said, this is all new stuff. Wow. Um, and uh, Loving Leadership yeah. Audiences uh, has a scoop on that now. I, I, I know. You've got, nice. this is, I think it's one of the first times I've talked about it. And so be on the lookout for that. And come philosophize with me anytime. There's a contact page at my website. Uh, I work with a lot of the greatest speakers uh, bureaus around the world. But I also have people approach me directly all the time and say, hey, we're having a meeting. 
Could you bring some of these ideas to the meeting? It's always fun, whether I'm doing it in a, with a virtual platform or whether I'm going across the country to meet with a group. Business schools have been asking me recently, like never before, come and talk to all our faculty, all our students. One uh, uh, school in Texas, to all our graduates, we want to get everybody on a Zoom session if we want to have you talk about true success, or we want to have you talk about if Aristotle ran general motors. So I'm happy to do this. It's a great joy to me to bring ideas to people who can use those ideas to do great good in the world. So I encourage people, let's be in touch. Let's philosophize together. Oh, I I love it. I absolutely love it. And and, and be careful what you ask for, because I'm not shy. Yeah. So we'll yeah. look for uh, Stoicism for Dummies and the yeah. Frankenstein effect yeah. coming up and then contact oh, yeah. you for um, for consulting, for uh, for uh, talks and, and oh, yeah. uh, business uh, wisdom. Hey, people have even been asking me to do a limited amount of executive coaching, which I've only done informally in the past. Uh, sometimes an executive will fly across the country and spend the day with me on the beach here in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, uh, just pouring out the woes that, that he's going through or the business is going through. And we try to make a di- I try to make a difference, but I've never really done that as one of my lines of service officially. But so many people have been asking me to recently. I may have worked with a few a few leaders in the in the very near future as kind of the normal part of of what I do. So I'm still exploring. My father said this. He said, life is supposed to be a series of adventures. The one you're on now is preparing you for the next one in ways you probably can't imagine. Be open to it. Uh, follow your heart and try to make whatever difference you can in the world. Uh, amen to that. And on that note, I want to thank you so much, Tom V. Morris, for uh, being with us on the Love and Leadership podcast and sharing your business and philosophy, wisdom, and, and bringing them together in such an, a natural and profound way. Well, thank you, Beth. You're one of the, our bright lights of our time, and I, I'm so glad to be a part of your great endeavor on this podcast. And thank you for tuning in to the Love and Leadership Podcast. And please be sure to subscribe, like, share, and hit the notifications button so you won't miss out on a single thing. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it inspired you to lead with truth, beauty, goodness, and unity in all aspects of your life. Because remember that leading with love is a superpower that transforms the world around us. So let's go out there and make a difference, one love and act at a time. I'm Dr. Beth Merkel with Dr. Tom B. Morris, and I can't wait to connect with you again on the next episode of Love and Leadership. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey we call Love and Leadership. Now it's time for you to take action and unleash your true leadership potential. Here are four easy steps you can take today. Number one, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Number two, share. Share the love with your friends, colleagues, and fellow leaders. Number three, connect to our love and leadership community by clicking the link below. And finally, take the knowledge and wisdom that you've gained from this podcast and put it into action. The Love and Leadership Podcast is more than just a podcast. It's a movement. Together, let's rewrite the leadership narrative and create a world where love, passion, and purpose thrive. I can't wait to see the incredible impact you'll make as a love and leader. Stay tuned for our next episode, and until then, lead on with love. A Huda Media Production.